Hey, uh, last night, Catherine and Misha and I went and watched the first two episodes of The Chosen in a cinema down at Carousel. If you haven't yet had the opportunity to do that, can I encourage you to do so? Um, it's it's um, made a really powerful, impactful start to the series. And we have been watching the series um, together at, on Sunday nights. Um, so when all of Series 4 is available, we'll do the same for that as well. But there's another reason why I want to encourage you to do this in the cinema. And that is cinemas make economic decisions based on the audience that turns up, right? We need to tell them that we are still here. So turning up will maybe not be as convenient as watching online. It will cost you some money. But I want to encourage you to uh, nail your colours to the, to the doorpost with, economically and to um, encourage cinemas with the knowledge that Christians are still here and um, catering and, and for this sort of thing is actually a viable option. Because economically, if it's not viable, they're just going to stop it. Okay. So we start today on the book of Titus. And some of what I want to go through with you today is a bit of an introduction to understanding the context of this letter. And some of it is actually looking at the, the crammed, packed down, squashed down in the cup kind of approach that Paul has taken with this opening address. It's the longest address that Paul gives to any of his letters that he's written. And it was one sentence. So um, uh, let's, let's make a start on this, shall you? Some of you on social media may have come across a meme like this. Uh, scientists say the universe is made up of protons, neutrons and electrons, and they forgot to mention morons. Now, I'm going to let you determine the ratio of the mix that is in the person sitting next to you, but you have to keep it to yourself, all right? We often think that the world is... that we're surrounded by turkeys, don't we? You know, the old saying, it's hard to, to soar like an eagle when you're surrounded by turkeys... And, and so moron is something that used to be used as a, a way of telling people that they really were an idiot. Um, it's something in us that we tend to do. Another word that we used to use that I haven't heard used for ages now is the word cretin. Yeah? It's not politically correct, no, because it's actually, it was, uh, doctors used the word to describe somebody who was born... Uh, deformed or, or handicapped and that sort of thing. Um, we tend to use it, or we used to use it as a word... Sorry? Biblical. It's biblical. Let's talk. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the word cretin was often used to describe somebody as being stupid. Now, I want to draw a distinction between the word cretin and the word cretin, okay? They're spelt differently. Cretin is C-R-E-T-I-N. Cretin describes a person who came from the island of Crete and it is spelt C-R-E-T-A-N. But there's not a lot of difference in the meaning. 
People from Crete were often described in very unflattering terms uh, because they were really mixed up people. Here's what some of the um, philosophers uh, at the time or the, the, the social commentators at the time had to say about them. Cicero wrote that the rules of life are so contradictory that the Cretans regard robbery as honourable. Polybius wrote, it would be impossible to find, except in some rare instances, personal conduct more treacherous or a public policy more unjust than in Crete. And later on in the book of Titus, uh, Paul draws on the, the writer... Uh, uh, I practised this word yesterday. Epimenides who wrote, Cretans or Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Kind of like coming from Armidale. I've lived with that stigma most of my life. But I want you to get the picture that Paul is writing to Titus, who's gone to the church in Crete to clean the mess up. He's writing to Titus who's leading a church that is full of Cretans. People whose moral compass is completely turned about. People who've grown up in a culture that says wrong is right. And so one of the things that helped me choose this book for us is I reckon we are living in a culture like that today. We are living in a world where we are told that what is wrong is actually what is right. And so whatever Paul wrote to Titus is going to have a lot of stuff in it that we need to know. How are we supposed to be Christians in a world like that? What should be our focus as a church in a world where everything is turned upside down? So let's take a moment and I'm going to show you a video of these people that have done a bit of an overview of the book of Titus just so that you can see where we're going in things and give you a little bit of context. So hopefully the sound will work on it and everything and here we go. Paul's letter to Titus. Titus was a Greek follower of Jesus who was for years a trusted co-worker and traveling companion of Paul's. He had helped Paul in a number of crisis situations in the past and in this letter we discover that Paul had assigned him the task of going to Crete, a large island off the coast of Greece, to restore order to a network of house churches. Now Cretan culture was notorious in the ancient world. One of the Greek words for being a liar was kretidzo, to be a Cretan. These people were infamous for treachery and greed. Most of the men on the island had served as mercenary soldiers to the highest bidder. And the island cities were known as being unsafe, plagued by violence and sexual corruption. However, the island of Crete had many strategic harbors and they serviced cities all over the ancient Mediterranean Sea. And so from Paul's point of view, Crete was the perfect place to start a network of churches. Now we don't know the details, but somehow these churches came under the influence of corrupt 
Cretan leaders. They said they were Christians, but they were ruining the churches. And so Paul assigned Titus with the task of going there to set things straight, and this letter provided the instructions. It has a pretty straightforward design. After a brief introduction, Paul gives Titus clear instructions about his tasks in the church. He then offers guidance about the new kind of household and then about the new kind of humanity that the gospel could create in these Cretan communities. Paul then closes the letter with some final greetings. So Paul opens the whole thing by reminding Titus that his message as an apostle is about the hope of eternal life, that is, the life of the new creation, that is available starting now through Jesus the Messiah. And this hope was promised long ago by the God who does not lie. Now, this little opening comment introduces an important theme underlying the whole letter. One of the problems in the Cretan churches was that they had assimilated their ideas about Jesus, the Christian God, to their ideas about the Greek gods that they grew up with, specifically Zeus, their chief god. Cretan people claimed that Zeus was actually born on their island, and they loved to tell stories and mythologies about Zeus's underhanded character. He would seduce women and lie to get his way. And Paul wants to be really clear. The God revealed through Jesus is totally different than Zeus. His basic character traits are faithfulness and truth, which means the Christian way of life will be about truth also, which will be a real change for these Cretans. So Paul then addresses Titus with a twofold task. He says the first one is to appoint new leaders for each church community, a team of what he calls elders, mature husbands or fathers whose way of life is totally different from Cretan culture. They are to be known for integrity, total devotion to Jesus, for self-control and generosity, both in their families and in the community at large. And these new leaders are to teach the good news about Jesus and replace the corrupt leaders who need to be confronted. That's Titus's second task. Paul identifies the teachers as those of the circumcision. In other words, they were ethnically Jewish Cretans who said that they followed Jesus, but similar to the problems in Galatia, these people demanded that non-Jewish Christians be circumcised and follow the laws of the Torah if they really wanted to become followers of the Jewish Messiah. Paul says that they're obsessed with Jewish myths and human commands. And to top it off, they're just in the church leadership business to make money. And so Paul, in a brilliant move, he pulls a quote from an ancient Cretan poet, Epimenides, who was very frank and honest about the character of his own people. He said Cretans are always liars, vicious beasts, and lazy gluttons. They blur the lines between true and false, between good and evil, and they're just in it for the money. And so while these leaders claim to know God, their Cretan way of life denies him. They have to be dealt with. And this leads Paul into the next section. Because of these corrupt leaders, many Christians in these churches now have homes and personal lives that are a total wreck. And three different times, Paul highlights the result of all this. The message about Jesus is discredited. Their non-Christian neighbors now have good cause to make evil accusations. And all of this makes the teaching about God our Savior totally unattractive and not compelling to anybody. So Paul paints a picture of the ideal Cretan household that is devoted to Jesus. It would be elderly men and women who are full of integrity and self-control so they can become models of character to the young people. And the young women shouldn't be sleeping around and avoiding marriage as was fashionable on Crete at the time, but rather they should be looking for faithful partners so they can raise stable, healthy families. And the young men are to do the same. They're to be known as productive, healthy citizens. 
Christian slaves on Crete were in a unique position because we know that because of the gospel, they were treated as equals in Paul's church communities. However, there was a danger that they would use that equality as license to disrespect their masters and then become associated with slave rebellions, which would further discredit the Christian message. You can see Paul negotiating a fine line here. He believes that the gospel about Jesus needs to prove its redemptive power in the public square if it's really going to transform Cretan culture. And that's not going to happen through social upheaval or by Christians cloistering away from urban life. The Christian message will be compelling to Cretans when Christians fully participate in public life, when their lives and homes look similar on the surface. Because after a closer look, their neighbors will discover that Christians live by a totally different value system out of devotion to a totally different God. And that's the difference that Paul beautifully summarizes at the end of chapter 2. He says the value system driving the Christian way of life is God's generous grace which appeared in the person of Jesus and will appear again at his return. This grace was demonstrated when Jesus gave up his honor to die a shameful death on behalf of his enemies so that he could rescue and redeem them. And it's that same grace that calls God's people to say no to corrupt ways of life that are inconsistent with the generous love of God. Paul then zooms out from the Christian household to a vision of Christians living like new humans in Cretan society. Of all people, Christians should be known as the ideal citizens, peaceable, generous, obedient to authorities, known for pursuing the common good. But this is really different from how Cretans grew up. How are Christians supposed to sustain this countercultural way of life? And Paul believes the power source is the transforming love of the three-in-one God announced in the gospel. And he explores this with a really beautiful poem. He says, God's kindness and love are what saved us, despite ourselves, so that through the Holy Spirit, God washed and rebirthed and renewed people, and through Jesus has provided a way for people to be declared right before him. And all of this opens up eternal life, that is, a new future in the new creation. This living story is so powerful, it can produce new kinds of people. Paul's convinced that spirit-empowered faithfulness to the teachings of Jesus will declare God's grace all over the island of Crete and all over the world. Paul concludes by promising to send backup for Titus, either Artemis or Tychicus, and then he says hello to their common friends. And so the letter ends. The letter of Titus shows us Paul's missionary strategy for churches to become agents of transformation within their communities. It won't happen by waging a culture war or by assimilating to the Cretan way of life. Rather, he calls these Christians to wisely participate in Cretan culture. They need to reject what's corrupt, but also embrace what's good there. If they can learn to live peaceably and devote themselves to Jesus and to the common good, Christians will, in his words, show the beauty of the message about our saving God. And that's what the letter to Titus is all about. I think it's helpful for us, and the reason why I showed it to you is because when you understand the context of what's been written, you understand a little bit more clearly why things have been said the way they've been said. See, Paul wanted to see people transformed by the gospel. He wanted to see people's lives changed by knowing Jesus, something that didn't stop once they were saved. The vision that Paul had for the church in Crete was for more people to enter into God's kingdom, but Paul also wanted to see them grow into maturity. 
bit like a, a parent who is not content with the safe arrival of their baby, but they have big dreams for that child as they grow into adulthood. Paul wanted the Christians in Crete to grow both numerically and spiritually. And that's what I want for us. Because I believe that that's what Jesus wants for this church too. He wants us to reach more and more people in Mundaring and Mount Helena and in Glen Forest and Darlington and Parkerville, wherever we live, in our workplaces, in our schools, our universities, in our mothers' groups, everywhere we go. Jesus wants us to shine the light of the gospel into those places to introduce people to him. Even the people whose moral choices make our jaws drop. If he can save the Cretans, he will save anyone. The point of the mission isn't simply converts though. Paul wasn't like the flying aces in the, in the wars that chalked up the number of kills on the side of their planes. The mission is to make disciples, not converts. The goal is Christians who continue to grow in knowledge and who become more like Jesus every day. So no matter what culture we live in, no matter how hard life in this world becomes, the mission for every Christian is to grow, to become more like the Jesus who we follow. As an apostle of Jesus Christ, Paul took instructions straight from him, which means that what Paul wrote is not some idealised utopian vision. It's orders from the king. Mundaring Church of Christ is commanded to connect people to God and to connect people to each other for the purposes of Christian discipleship. Making new disciples of Jesus and working together so that you and I grow and change. That's what we are about. And right at the outset of this letter, Paul spells out how and why this happens. It's, and it's easy for us to skip over it and rush into the instructions that follow. We've only read one sentence. But without that one sentence, everything else that Paul wrote loses its meaning and purpose. It loses the heart of Jesus and it becomes just a set of rules. And we all know how Jesus got on with people who insisted on following the rules. So here comes the whole point of this sermon. In fact, it's the point of the book of Titus. This is how Titus was to lead a church full of Cretans in a world whose moral compass was completely shot. This is the antidote to what is wrong with the world. And it's what we have to keep coming back to. It's everything that this church needs to stand for. You ready?
I missed it. Unbelievable. Here's the point. <laughs> Don't forget the gospel. Don't forget the gospel. See, if you walk away from the gospel, if you take the gospel out of what your church is doing, you've got nothing more than a set of rules. And it's pointless. It's binding. And it's a whip across the backs of slaves. And it has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. Don't forget the gospel. Hey, you found it. So in verse 1, I guess we have to... Oh, you went too far forward. There we go. In verse 1... Paul gladly reveals himself as a servant of God. Now, your, your translation, if you're using the NLT or something similar, it might use the word slave, but not the bad kind of slave. See, a slave who is a prisoner to their master, who is beaten into submission and trapped, is not what Paul saw himself at all. This is not the Bible saying that slavery is okay. Paul devoted himself to the mission of the gospel out of choice. And yet the concept of slave applies in the same way that you and I are slaves to the choices that we make. We go to work each day because we have rent or a mortgage and bills to pay. And having somewhere nice to live is important to us. It's part of the vision that we have of a good life that we enjoy in Australia. So much so that society calls it a basic human right. So we're compelled to get up each morning at the same time and get ourselves to work. Maybe we want to go on a trip later on in the year, go somewhere nice for a break from our work, so we work harder to be able to afford the things that we want. Like it or not, we are kind of slaves. Slaves to the vision that we have of what is important in life. Paul was a slave to the gospel because he'd been completely overwhelmed by it. He'd been captivated by it. He was completely sold out to the vision and the hope of the gospel. So much so that he gave up everything else and made his life choices based on what would further the gospel mission. He was compelled by it. But what would do that to a man? Paul used to be high up in the church as an organisation. He used to study the law and could boast that he kept it very well. He knew the rules. He followed the rules. And he made sure that others did also. Or they were punished. Sometimes with death. So what changed him? 
One day, Paul met Jesus. And he was overwhelmed by the magnitude of the grace that Jesus showed to him. To a man who had deliberately set out to persecute anyone who followed Jesus, who chased them down and had them stoned to death, who struck fear into the hearts of Christians all around, to that man, Jesus showed grace and mercy and compassion. And Paul, though he was on the right path to please God, Jesus showed him that he was never going to make it on his own. Jesus held out his hand in the same way as he'd held it out to Peter when he was sinking into the waves. And he said, Paul, take my hand. Let's stop being enemies. Come and follow me. Paul saw that when the creator of the universe does that for you, when he steps into the creation that he made and places himself in the hands of evil people to be tortured and killed in his place, you don't turn away from that. You take the hand. But on top of that, as if being saved wasn't enough, Paul found that he was chosen by God to be an apostle. An apostle of the one he'd been trying to kill. It was Paul who God chose to speak through, to reveal Jesus to the Gentile world. You know, Paul wrote 50% of the New Testament as an apostle of Jesus. 50% came through a man who was actively searching out Christians and killing them. God's grace wasn't just for saving Paul. God was gracious enough to give Paul purpose and meaning in his new life. You see, what we do to deepen our own personal faith in Jesus reaches into eternity in many ways. It's the only thing that we can do with our time that lasts the test of time. Fires, storms, financial disasters, they can all destroy everything else that we work for. But nothing can destroy the faith of a Christian who has grown to full maturity. Because it's based on hope, on confidence that comes from relationship with God. With a God who has proven his faithfulness in the past and continues to prove that he's not a lie to Christians all around the world every day. In verse 2, Paul wrote that the hope of eternal life, which God who does not lie, promised from the beginning of time. I guess another word for hope, I've used it, is confidence. It could be vision. The vision of eternity in God's kingdom. That's what motivated Paul to be all about the gospel. 
It motivated him to be passionate about taking that hope to others. It drove him to search more and more deeply into the mysteries of Christ, to hear his voice teaching him how to live. Paul hadn't been beaten into submission by the gospel. He'd been captivated by it and he surrendered himself to it. Jesus was everything to Paul. Because Jesus had already demonstrated that Paul meant everything to him. Jesus had gone to the cross because Paul mattered so much to him. Jesus went through everything he did, all the suffering, because you matter to him. The creator of the universe gave his life because he loves you so much. I think that's just amazing. That he wants relationship with me and is prepared to use me in ways that I don't even understand is staggering. And that God would be willing to bring that same hope to light for others through Paul. That blew Paul's mind. What a privilege to be part of the gospel mission, bringing eternal life into the futures of others. That's incredible. Dying people live, you see, when they have hope. Hope brings purpose to life. And it will bring people back from the brink of death because hope feeds faith. It's a crazy circular kind of thing. We only have hope because of our faith in Jesus. And yet it's that hope that feeds our faith and makes it stronger because it's not just wishful thinking, it's confidence in the truth. When we're saved, God's spirit opens our eyes to see Jesus the way that Paul saw him on that road. No matter what we've done, no matter what we've been like, the Holy Spirit shines light into our hearts so we can see what Jesus has done for us. And he gives us the faith that we need to begin with. The light of the gospel is planted in us. God's spirit is in us and the journey has begun. And from then on, the path of discipleship is all about learning how to live in that gospel light. Paul wrote that his purpose as a servant of God and apostle of Jesus was to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. He didn't say knowledge of the law. Although that stuff still matters. The most critical factor that leads to a growing faith is our knowledge of the gospel. How, do, how well do we know it? How much do we experience it? Because the gospel is all about grace. Paul calls it the truth because that's what it is. The world has sold us a lie. Satan has sold us a lie. 
the truth that rewrites the way we see our whole existence is only found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Christian discipleship is all about diving into that gospel and swimming around in it so that we're completely soaked in it and then doing life. Titus was to take back the leadership of that church from men who were ruining it by running it under the framework of the world. And he was to bring the gospel back into the heart of that church. Because the way to become like Jesus is to become soaked in the gospel. The way for the church to be what it's meant to be, to shine the heart of Jesus into the world, is for it to be soaked in the gospel. To let the gospel shape how we do life together. Let me give you a brief example of what I mean. I want to talk specifically to how many teens have we got here? People still living with their parents, maybe. I can see a couple. Okay. Bible teaches you guys to submit to your parents. But here's the thing the gospel teaches you that Jesus loved you and would do anything for you. That is the heart of your parents. Submitting to somebody who you know loves you and wants the best for you, and but even though they're human and they make mistakes, if you start from the framework of the gospel and believe that your parents love you, it will change how hard it is for you to submit to them. It makes it so much easier to submit to somebody who you know wants the best for you. Parents, we're told in the scriptures not to exasperate our children. And we do it time and time again so easily. The gospel teaches us to have humility. It teaches us that we do make mistakes. And so we need grace. We need to come before God and confess. Over the Christmas break, uh, Misha and Catherine and I had a, a situation that developed. And we needed to lay down the law on a few things for her. But I also was convicted that I hadn't been the dad that she needed. I'd made mistakes. Previously in her life as a primary school student, I'd always devoted Friday afternoons to her. It was daddy date time. Not even mum got a look in. Misha got to say where we went. Misha got to say if mum could come or not. She knew she had me, of devoted time to her, and that was about our relationship, and I'd let that slip. I'd become busy and tired, and I hadn't done it. 
I had to go to her and confess that. And I had to say to her, look, I will try to do this better and I want you to hold me accountable. You come to me and tell me if I, I, I'm, not, I'm not living up to my word. We need to do that with each other. Parents, we need to parent from a, a position of gospel grace that accepts that we make mistakes, confesses those mistakes and has the humility to not see that as a, a chink in our authority. We need to never forget the gospel because the gospel is all about life. And that's why Paul starts by setting the framework of what he's all about right in this very first sentence. The only place that the rest of what he's going to make right makes sense is in the framework of the gospel. Because if we skip over that, it'll be nothing more than rules. So I wonder, um, where are you at in relationship with Jesus? Maybe you have, over time, been growing softer to the gospel. Maybe you have been hearing conviction in your heart that something's not right in here. Maybe you are taking steps towards Jesus and it's time for you to make that public. I want to give you the opportunity through our last song to come forward and have people pray with you. There's nothing particularly magical about doing that. You don't need to do that to be saved. But at some point in your Christian growth, you need to nail your colours to the doorpost. You need to let other people know, I'm choosing to make my life about the gospel. I'm choosing to be a disciple of Jesus. I'm inviting you to make that public this morning as the musicians come up. And uh, we're going to sing a song that is all about God's amazing grace. So I'm going to ask Len to come up and lead us through that. During the song or even afterwards if you want to, we've got a, a prayer team of people who love praying with people. I invite you to come forward. It doesn't have to be about that. If you want prayer for something else, that's fine too.